Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast from the Centric Lab. Some of this material will be familiar with the listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house to further our intended direction. Centric are all about enhancing user experience in the built environment. One of our main things is mapping out ecosystems and looking for friction and tension points. Well, that's what this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses that are helping to design, build, manage, and dream of the cities of tomorrow. My name is Josh, and I'll be your host. This episode was originally recorded in May 2017. It was the first in a two-part episode, looking at new financing models for property development. Whilst we can look at a variety of means and virtuous ideas for creating cities, it does have to be funded by someone and somehow. And finance is crucial to the industry, certainly as the majority of business is based on moving private capital around to generate returns. It's an ugly truth we'll never get away from. But sometimes it's never the industry sector itself that needs changing, but the tools it uses and the laws around it that help will guide its actions. In this episode, I'm going to be speaking with Michael Dean, who's a principal at the firm Avermore Capital. I've known Michael for a while now, and I've always enjoyed speaking with him as he looks at his industry with quite a rounded view. Michael is both a traditionalist and a tech-inspired radical. He's a well-educated and rounded man, and I hope he imparts some insights to you. So let's get on with the show. Cool. Um, Mike or Michael, what do you want to be called today? Call me whatever you like. Michael, uh, welcome to the Conscious Cities podcast. Um, so I thought... Huh, good, to, good to have you here. Um, I think it'd be sensible for you to give yourself an introduction as to, to who you are, uh, what your company does, and kind of how you got there, basically. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll try to be as succinct as possible because I, I tend not to be that brief normally when I have meetings. Um, so my name is Michael Dean and I am the co-founder and principal at Avermore Capital, which is an alternative finance provider, essentially providing non-bank lending to property developers and property entrepreneurs in the UK, predominantly in the southern half of the country. My background is I started my life as a surveyor at Cushman and Wakefield uh, going back about 13 years ago and I specialised in central London property being a a letting agent in the city and then selling and buying buildings in the West End for a variety of clients. I then moved on to a private equity company and I worked there for about two and a half years. Uh, It was just after Lehman Brothers so we spent most of our time digging our projects out of uh, out of some interesting situations with banks, um, but also delivered some uh, interesting development projects in London. Uh, I left there to set up a family office with, uh, with a relative, and we've been developing, investing in commercial real estate for the past six years. Um, we started, during that time we've been working with a range of investors and developers and had been JVing and funding them as well. Um, so we were used to the funding side of things. And um, also occasionally Moonlight working with a few developers and investors who were looking for, for financing and uh, on an advisory basis. And I was finding that they weren't being served that well in the market. And I got to meet my main business partners are here uh, with my also co-founder Nick who worked for our family office and he was he just left Goldman Sachs and he was looking to deploy 
some of their family family money into the private debt space, and we had we were advising a couple of uh, a couple of developers at the time who needed some money, and uh, we got to talking, and uh, one thing led to another, and we ended up uh, ended up working together and setting up Avonmore, and um, we've been going now for something in the region of uh, twenty months. We've done in excess of thirty five million pounds worth of transactions, wow. and. Um, We've got aspirations of doing over 100 million pounds next year. Um, it's also coincided, I think, with a good time in the market for us to be doing what we're doing as a family. The property investments that we were making had been achieving really good returns, but I think also the um, that a lot of that was cyclical, and the types of stuff that we were buying was predominantly buying office buildings or tertiary commercial stock. And then obtaining consents to to convert that into residential or residential-led schemes, and we were selling the, those schemes on to developers. Um, when the government made PDR permanent, do you want to just quickly explain PDR to those sure. who are not familiar? PDR is permitted development rights, which means that you can automatically convert an office building to residential uh, under certain set of criteria. Um, it's worth looking up if you aren't aware of it. Um, when the government made permitted development rights permanent, it essentially crystallised a lot of value in our portfolio as a family. But the challenge that, that then came from that was that the strategy that we'd been employing, which was buying sites which had maybe two or three years worth of income on them uh, and then working them through the planning system, we weren't able to buy those properties as affordably because essentially the uplift in value from the residential consent had already been baked in so there, the strategy for us had to change and so for us redeploying our capital into into private debt uh, or private real estate debt predominantly made a lot, a lot of sense and um, so we've been doing that increasingly over the last 18 months and we've exited all of our commercial real estate holdings in that time um, to to channel that money through through the Avonmore platform. Cool, that's a good good story. There, I mean, you. Um, how much of your experience in that sort of post Lehman Brothers era uh, brought the awareness of perhaps the the, the red tape and, and the difficulties of working with the banks that in sort of early influenced you to what you're doing now? Well, I think we had done uh, we did something quite unusual uh, with the development that we we brought forwards in uh, in Victoria back in 2009 we managed to secure a speculative development facility from a German bank um, for almost 100 million pounds um, at a time when I don't think any bank in the country would have given you a speculative development facility to build an office development um, I think there were some particular uh, circumstances around that deal that that gave us a slight edge um, but ultimately there were a lot of hoops that had to be jumped through and in the end before we could act, from start to finish before we could actually put a brick on a brick I think it took us, it took us something in the region of 18 months to get to get to that point before we can actually start demolition and start work on site so um, whilst we like to pat ourselves on the shoulders it, it actually was a very cumbersome process and I think we had some very interesting conversations and situations with other assets that had been um, in challenging situations um, 
you know, covenant, um, managing covenant breaches, etc. And um, you know, it, it, it was very interesting seeing how those how those banks dealt with that, um, and it was eye opening. It was it was a good experience. So, so if you could explain a little bit more about what the sort of the alternative financing, I think it's the bridging financing that you've talked about, and where 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 you feel that where your edge is in comparison to a traditional bank, for example, and sort of who your who your customer market is. So our, our, our typical customer is a relatively young property developer or entrepreneur. I, I use the term young in a, in a loose sense because it's young more to, to describe their experience than, than their actual age. Mm. You know, it's someone who's kind of somewhere between project one and ten in their in their in their life cycle and they are but but not exclusively and and they are looking for a funding partner either to bridge a purchase on a site um, provide them with a development facility to redevelop or refurbish a property um, or alternatively um, to provide them with the funds to exit their existing development facility, release a bit of equity, um, so they can go on and buy their next project and and keep our funds in place while they sell the asset that they're that the loan secured against. So something that um, you said there that interests me, and I think was is really exciting about this market is the you know, you're talking about the, the sort of the young entrepreneur that that person entering the market your your one to ten kind of development yeah. sort of thing are you do you feel and or perhaps are you seeing that it is a tool that is bringing more people into the market it's you know I always like to think of this idea as like is it a democratizing tool do you feel that is that is true at the moment I think that there is an element of that Josh um, and the main reason is that I think that if you want to get a loan from a mainstream lender in the development space, whether that's a clearing bank or even a challenger bank such as Aldermore or Close, um, that one's for free guys, um, <laughs> you you do have to have, you know, you do have to pass uh, or pass a lot of their hurdles. You know, you've got to tick a lot of their boxes, um, and they can be quite fussy about your background, your history, and your experience. And we're we're actually doing a fourteen unit scheme in Braintree with a developer who, to my mind, is actually very experienced. But for whatever reason, um, you know, one of those mainstream lenders felt like they were they were not necessarily, um, you know, that they they weren't. So they, you know, they they were they were difficult, shall we say, with him, and made his life life quite frustrating, and they moved very slowly, and in the end, he had enough, and he said, "Do you know what? I've had enough of this. I need to work with someone who, you know, who who can, you know, who, who can move quickly, who you know, who doesn't need to know my inside leg measurement, <laughs> and." Um, you know, who can actually see that I'm an experienced quality guy and I don't need to have six levels of credit committee approval. 
um, before I can actually take some money. So it, it, almost even though that the, you know the banks and the bank manager meetings that someone might have had, you try and build up this rapport. What in fact you're saying is you you have or this industry in your sector is adding a slightly more human touch in the fact that you you will listen to a person and judge them not just on their spreadsheet but as them as a person and understand what their issues are in that development a little bit more from your knowledge of kind of being on the insides i think some of that helps I mean, the, actually i think but the thing is that we we as a team are, are are actually in a lot of ways outsiders to the industry and i think that that's a really good thing because as i i think when you have an outsider um, coming in you look at you look at things slightly differently and you you, you sort of try and you know that it's that famous adage you know that the most dangerous words in business are this is how we've always done it and hmm. um, we most definitely don't adopt that approach I think being outsiders can create challenges because maybe we are you know I think particularly at the beginning we sometimes treated each transaction a bit like it you know, if you look at the where we've all come from, um, you know, in our previous employments within the team, we have, have a habit of treating a, you know, half million pound bridge loan a bit like it's a private equity transaction for, for ten for a hundred times the size. But, um, but ultimately, you know, we've got the deal done and we've got the deal done quickly. Um, but, uh, you know, the the reality is that we just try and adopt every deal. To approach every deal with a common sense approach so that we're not doing things with a tick box mentality we don't have this sort of computer says no credit policy um, we're just we're, we're looking at each deal and each deal on its merits and um, so a lot of a lot of banks or challenges banks um, or even you know or even people closer to our space might turn around and say, "Oh well, you know, you've you you know you had a you had this company go into liquidation in two thousand and three, so we can't we can't lend to you." Or you've got you've got a lot of developers who got taken out in the in the crisis yeah. um, of two thousand and seven to two thousand and nine, including some people who've, who who had bankruptcies. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, that they're, they're not bad people. They're not bad business people. They were. No one had a crystal ball, um, and if you're a, if you're a property developer operating in in those eras, you, how do you make your money? How do you do, how do you run your business? You run your business by buying sites, building them out, and selling them, um, and and ultimately you you can't just and, and particularly if you've got a big workforce or big team, you can't just take those guys off site and say, guys, you do, do you know what? I don't feel that great about. I don't feel that great about the next 18 months so I think we're just going to shut everything down and you know good luck finding other work thanks very much it doesn't really it doesn't work like that in the house building industry but the problem is that a lot of guys got taken down because of cross collateralized assets because of guarantees that they had in place etc 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 the problem is that 10 years on a lot of those a lot of those ghosts are continuing to haunt them and so a lot of the the cheaper mainstream lenders won't won't give them money, and they are not they are not actually bad risks as as individuals. But ultimately, I think one of the other approaches that we've taken is that you know we are ultimately an asset based lender. 
And so we're lending against the asset. You know, if the proverbial hits the fan, what have we got? We've got it. We've we've got, and which is why we've always we've always been a little bit um, conservative about uh, with small C about how we approach development projects. So we've not we've not approached we've not gone after lending against development projects where we internally don't have the experience of delivering those kind of projects. If we had to and step in, if a if a developer walked away, um, because you know we acknowledge that there will be there may be a circumstance where we might have to um, and so that's why we've not been overly ambitious either geogra- geographically or um, in terms of the type or size of development that we've looked to fund to date I think as our team and our experience grows we can be a little bit more adventurous with that yeah. um, but but that being said you know we're, being an asset based lender means that you you, you, you can look at things on their merits and just because someone has had some difficulties in the past or alternatively if they don't have any experience um, that gives us also a lot of flexibility because we're working on one situation right now where you've got we've got a couple who want to develop a couple of houses in Surrey um, relatively modest scheme and but they, 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 have, they have no experience. They've just got a site, they've got a consent. Um, and so we're doing, we're doing almost everything for them. We're putting together the, the full professional team for them. And that, you know, from, from architects, structural engineer, um, CDM coordinator, you know, employer's agent, just put it, putting, the whole, putting the whole thing together for them. And, or, and, and almost, you know, uh, you say we're providing that level of service that you'd never get from a bank or, or even a, a challenger or, or specialist development lender. See, that's quite interesting because then all of a sudden you become a service to perhaps a, a mum and pup who might be sitting on a, a large sort of plot freehold uh, that they own in, in whatever community and th- there's an opportunity, but where do they go? Where's their, where's their first stop? You know, do they have to sell to a developer who will, you know, will get the uplift or do they get a service, someone that enables them you know, to work with them to help release this equity that might help fund their children getting on a ladder, might help fund, uh, I don't know, another part of their life. Someone might need to do a master's degree or whatever. Uh, do you see that as a, a growing side of things or is it just this, this incident is uh, just something that you'd come across? I think, I think it is a, it's a USP that we're trying to develop. There are a couple of other guys in the market who, who do similar things. Their money is a little bit more expensive than ours, um, for what it's worth. But um, we know that the majority of development lenders, traditional development lenders, uh, whether that's banks or challengers or, or, or guys closer to our side of the fence, aren't aren't generally willing to lend to these people because of their lack of experience. And what we're doing is we're almost we're almost we're we're cultivating relationships with contractors and professionals in the geographies that we like to finance so that we if if we get a, a very inexperienced developer and I use that term loosely because hmm. if they've never put a brick on a brick they you know they are they they are literally clueless but if if we do get an inexperienced developer We've got we have we we are effectively sponsoring the sponsoring the development ourselves, um, 
that gives us full protection because we know we've got trusted people there. Our, our risk is mitigated, but we are providing a value-add service. The, the downside of that is that it is, it, it, it is very time-consuming from a human perspective for us. Mm. We, can, we will, can and will in time, I think, um, adopt tech solutions to that. Uh, which will make that quicker. I think one of the other things that we'll probably do as well is um, probably narrow the the types of the, the, the contractors that we work with or the professionals that we work with so that we effectively have a fixed professional team for each region. And we say, if you're an inexperienced developer, this is who you're going to use, and that's it. And then there's not you know, and then there's not really too much, there's not too much messing around, but. We're still working. We're still working out those relationships. Yeah. Um, so we can build in greater efficiencies into that. And I wouldn't be surprised if other um, if other developers, or sorry, other lenders in our space start to look at that. But guys who've been in the industry a long time, you know, for them it's they 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 very much operate with a well. Have they got any experience? No, okay, well, I, or, or not very much. Well, okay, well, we're not lending, we won't lend to them, we'll, mm. we won't work with them. No, no, you know, and it's a blanket no. The thing is, how does how does a developer get on the ladder? How do, how do they get started? You know, you, you need, you've got to put your, you've got to do your first project. You know, if we, we, we've got a housing crisis in this country and you're, you're not going, you're not going to fix that by keeping the number of developers that operate in a, in a concentrated number you want as many people as possible with development experience who can bid for government or public brownfield contracts because that then takes the that then deals I think with a lot of the supply issues that we have at the moment because you then don't have 20 volume house builders that ultimately control 80 or 90% of the housing supply in the country you know you, that that in itself is a de, is very democratizing in terms of the housing supply. Do you feel that the the competition might also force through more quality as the difficulties of often getting plannings through local authorities uh, can be down to perhaps the actual architectural scheme that's been delivered. It might not meet certain criteria that local authority want in in design and sort of social amenities. Do you think that might force or edge more the sort of architectural sort of led developments? Um, I can't say that with any great certainty, given that I know developers and <laughs> you know developers generally thinking about the bottom line. Yeah, um, of course. Look, there's there, there's business that always needs to be done. Everyone just needs to work out on what lines they intend to do it. And I think the the, the transparency, the clearness, but the competition will also see people. Uh, reach for the top as well as they might you know run down to the bottom in the type of returns they're mm-hmm. happy to accept but often things have to get through a planning process and a planning approval um something that you've you've mentioned before uh before this pod uh, is the, the 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 conversation around the speed at which alternative funding can help deliver a scheme in comparison to a bank 
and I think it'd be good to get your opinions on that coupled with perhaps the the planning process here in the UK which most people will say is convoluted and sort of difficult to get through what's your kind of view on on the speed and perhaps what which sector needs to improve itself better in planning or sort of financing and funding both (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'll I'll start with planning because it's a at the end of the day, the the planning system is will create is creating a bigger logjam in my opinion than the finance sector, but that's not it, the difference isn't that material either. Um, but you know you need without consents you can't there's nothing to finance. So the the planning system at the moment is uh, is broken and really I think. There needs to be, uh, there needs to be a lot more thought put into it. I mean, the government's white paper, just, I mean, was the biggest waste of time ever. Honestly, I mean, not literally, but it, it, it was it was a huge waste of time, uh, and, and it really just paid lip service to to dealing with. The is there issues. anything you wanted to see? If uh, if there's anything, is there any sort of one hook? Whether it was a certain you know uh, size of plots that were could be sped through, or there was going to be an increase of a certain member of staff, or they might adopt a better sort of technology facility to receive uh, applications. Was there one thing that you were kind of thinking? I just say put that. I think you just. I think you've got to. um, I I think I think it goes further than that. I think there's. I think there's there's a greater. There needs to be a, a greater. Um, uh, a, a greater sense of community and the uh, everyone community between the, the between planners, authorities, and in, developers. In, in the sense of everyone want everyone wants to see more housing built. Yeah. In inverted commas, right? Just not where they where they live. Okay. <laughs> um, and you know you can't. You can't, um, you, you know. There's so many people get up in arms about about these things, and, and, that, and then and then when when a development proposal comes comes on their on their doorstep, no, no matter how um, benign or, or or sympathetic it might be, people get upset about it. I mean, I, my I I live just outside of London. I get on a packed train every day. If I if I want to get a quicker train, I'm standing for 45 minutes. Um, one stop down the line before us, um, a thousand a thousand houses are being built. It's only going to make the congestion on my train worse. I could be selfish and get up in arms about it and object to that being delivered. But on the flip side, it it I, it would be enormously hypocritical of me to do so. The the reality is that the planning decisions at a local level are far too politicised. We have planning professionals, i.e. local local town planners, who are recommending schemes which then get refused at... which get refused at committee. Because Because the planning officers have approved them, it's because they meet the requirements of the local plan, which means that in three to six months' time, when the developer appeals... The, it, ultimately, the development is allowed on appeal. So all the planning processes, all, all the, the councillor has done is delayed the developers, uh, and, and that developer, by the way, could be a housing association. It could be a local authority yeah, itself. Yeah. 
that's providing much needed affordable housing. So I'm not I'm not talking about this with with a great big greedy developer hat on, <laughs> but actually you know with you know with a slightly social conscious hat on here, there is uh, you know local councillors themselves are as much a problem, yeah. and um, I think the the planning pre- planning system needs to be depoliticised. I think that there should be there should, there should be more work going in at the front end with more, more detailed local plans um, which should state that you know if you if you effectively say if you effectively say in a local plan right for this plot if you deliver this height this massing this number of units and this this proportion of affordable and the, these amenities we will grant you planning if you apply for it yeah it's and, 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 and that's it it's it, it it doesn't need to be as it doesn't need to be as difficult as it is. I I applied for planning to convert uh, an office building in Kent, in a town which had an oversupply of offices, an undersupply of housing. We got through first time, which is great, but it, it took us six months to get an approval because, and there was nothing contentious about our application at all. We actually had a reasonably good dialogue with the council. We had to make a few adjustments to height and massing. But the planning officer that we were dealing with only worked two days a week. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, the, what is, the, it's the, the, the level of... It's just so illogical. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's something I'm going to come uh, get onto it in another podcast. The how do we actually re-look at planning? How do we how do we crowdsource planning? How does, how does planning become a a better tool of communication between local communities what they want um, and then how does that dialogue get improved with those who are coming in with needed investment needed capital they you know regardless of what anyone thinks they do help breed jobs in local areas um, and is also delivering the housing that everybody wants as well so it, it, it does appeal to be this whole communication breakdown I mean as you've said before about the communication breakdown perhaps between the old traditional lenders and those who may have come uh, sort of stuck in in downturn economic times forever now being on a blacklist and actually what you you guys are doing at Avermore is get saying well look let's actually talk and listen to you and look at your scheme rather than just give you know have your label forever given to you it's the same way of looking at an ex-convict you can't just label an ex-convict an ex-convict for the rest of their lives they can still be they still are a human being and they can be completely changed but it's not fair on them there's it's it's i think it's, it's a much bigger topic this idea of um planning and how we improve the communication i just see that in so many industries that i've had the pleasure of either working in or or speaking to people in um i'm conscious of your time so i kind of want to i'm going to give you a couple quick fire questions just uh, no, we, we, we're, we're good for time so that's cool as, as as you wish um what's what's the kind of limit with alternative funding you know are you looking at this in this way like everyone's like oh we're, we're a new thing we're going to disrupt the entire market we're going to bring down lloyd's and barclays where do you see its limit is it in its infancy as an industry post sort of the major financial crisis is it something that's going to scale out to become a, a huge uh, peer-to-peer lending tool which we see some of those guys I don't know if you want to critique on them as well the sort of the crowdsourcing financing I know you've got some opinions um, you know or, or is it something that's gonna it's just gonna sit there as a, as a new tool what's your kind of opinion on its its limit look I think it's I think it's a really a really exciting place I think long term it's going to 
it's going to increasingly dominate the landscape in terms of how projects get funded, whether it's whether it's office buildings, or, or whether that's or residential developments or shopping centres or whatever. Um, the thing, the, the the key thing to making the space have scale is 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 reducing the delta between the cost of bank funding and the cost of um, the cost of alternative funding and a lot of alternative funders have become banks because they, so they've been able to access wholesale markets um, that's not necessarily a direction that re- we really want to go in um, but but ultimately for alternative funding to get scale the cost of funding needs to reduce rapidly the challenge that you have with that is you know when you've got you know the the more kind of established guys like lend investor offering you know five or six percent to investors um, on their money um, you know that means that they've you know they've got to make a margin on top of that mm. that's you know you, you have to then have investors who are prepared to take lower returns and what we've seen from some of the nascent crowdfunding platforms when they've put the more secure safe deals on the platforms when they've listed them the appetite hasn't been there from the crowd whereas if you put something a bit racy and with a double digit return on it that's when that's when you see the, the take up go through the roof um, and I think that that in the short term creates problems uh, because because ultimately the, the platforms are ultimate uh, the platforms are ultimately going to tailor their their underwriting to meet their investor demand because there's no point trying to underwrite a deal that they can't actually fund and accordingly um, you know given that we have cycles uh, we, we have economic cycles and property cycles we are you know we are at the top of a cycle um, that is going to lead to, I think, short-term problems, mm. uh, particularly in the crowdfunding space, because um, we, there is a, a platform that I've privately been very critical of that has very recently completely changed their underwriting model and they're now going for much more um, much more conservative um, types of deals relative to the ones that they were doing before, offering their investors a lot less. And I think it's because they realised just in time, I think, that... Um, the stuff that they've been doing before was not sustainable and was going to cause an absolute disaster for them. There is, however, a bit of a problem from the development point of view on the crowdfunding side, particularly on the the debt side, because the FCA have recently said you can't, if you're a peer-to-peer lender, you can't lend to a developer unless you take all of the funds required to complete the development up front now what would happen before is that you you the, the lenders would lend to the developer as and when the developer needed money and then the developer's only paying interest at the point that they're drawing the money down from the lender the problem that they've got now is either the developer has to pay for the imp- entire drawdown on day one which is economically um, unviable 
So, sorry about that. We had a slight uh, technical hitch. This is what happens when you uh, record in the field. Um, but uh, Michael was just in the process of describing more about uh, sort of drawdown facilities and uh, how they can work and how they are working for developers. Um, sorry, so as, as you were, yeah. Mike. So, so when you're working when you're working with a peer-to-peer platform, um, what has been happening up to date is that the developer, the developer will commit to a lender and vice versa. The lender will provide an advance against the land and then would drip feed the build costs as, as and when the developer um, had completed enough work that needed to be funded to pay contractors and professionals, etc. The challenge with um, the, the challenge faced by the peer-to-peer lender was uh, that they they need to be able to fund those drawdowns by requesting those drawdowns from the crowd crowdfunding investors the issue is that those crowdfunding investors may whilst they might be there for the first mm. first few drawdowns mm. they might not be there for the last six drawdowns or whatever they might that might be which could potentially leave the developer in the lurch which means that uh, which means that from a developer's perspective it, it is quite risky to borrow from a from a, a lender yeah. Who, who, I mean, who yeah. sources their money through the crowd? I mean, that does actually make sense. I think from, from the FCA and what yeah, no, saying, it's, it's it's completely logical. It's, it, it's completely logical. But it, it it puts the onus then on actually the delivering of the scheme, which both comes in part of what we were saying about planning, but also actually building. And I think there are huge changes that are occurring in the construction sector. To what extent does you know do things like I don't know if, if BIM modelling actually. Uh, I, I'm, I'm I'm I. I think BIM modeling is a is incredibly smart and uh, it's only it's it's only a function of um, most contractors up to now or most developers up to now being Luddites and not not being (laughs) most people in the property industry as we as we know Josh are not the most tech savvy people Um, but but to my mind BIM is um, BIM is an incredible tool and will will, will lead to enormous efficiencies in um, it will lead to enormous efficiencies in the uh, in the construction sector, and the the use of BIM modelling will then be very useful in providing information to funders as to what because it then becomes much more predictable when because you then know when is the you know when when is the roof going on when are the you know when's the electrics being done when are the doors being done when's the final glazing being done when's the kitchen going in when's the bathroom going in etc 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 um and i'm i'm simplifying it here yeah, yeah, yeah. but um but ultimately bim will make all of that so much more predictable and that feeds through to the funding process as well and and actually will make will actually make um make borrowing slightly cheaper as well for for developers too because um, what it means is that at the moment lenders are having to estimate the timing of drawdowns and that then means that they're having to in some cases make the facilities um, bigger than the developer needs which means that the, the developer ends up paying more arrange, more in arrangement fees and pays, ends up paying more in rolled up interest um, than or paying more on the interest roll up should I say or interest retention than they should to should do or should need to. So that in itself is going to be actually a very useful tool uh, in my mind, and, and and I'm very supportive of it. That's cool. I've, I've got a que- I've got a question that 
It's um, everyone. One of the things everyone loves about technology is its ability to speed up a, a process. And you know, when, when we look at it in the market at the moment, we've talked before, and a lot of people are talking about the you know the wonderful ability of you know the the prop tech market. Uh, to capture an audience and help build these these software tools that that bring them forward, then coupling that with the idea of sort of fintech or the alternative financing model mm. through technology, and then kind of advanced construction tech in building. I guess a question I have: Are all these technologies actually speeding up the process of delivering from very start to end? Or is it just a new way of doing things? But was it quicker 15 years ago, 10 years ago, when the technology was nowhere near as mature, that actually someone finding a site, going for planning, building, getting the funding and delivering? Um, you know, are we seeing things being delivered? Uh, and perhaps you might know from some of the schemes you've done or funded, being delivered in six months, whereas years ago it would have been 18 months, two years? Um. You could argue that there is potential for thing for developments to be completed a bit quicker now. The reality is that, um, aside from the planning logjam, we talked about you know yeah. we talked off off air about the delays in in speed of getting money. Um, some would argue this is a bad thing, but you know a developer could pick up the phone to their you know their their relationship manager at H boss. Ten years ago, or and, and could get, you know, three or four million quid on a on a text message, um, the next day, and could I'd like to get that text message. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, literally, I've, I've spoken to developers who, who who've told me that's the way it was. Clearly, that's um, that was probably too far in the other direction. But the the challenge I think that that, that we find now is that. Um, developers are not able to get on site as quickly or they're not able to complete they're not able to buy the sites that quickly and then the fun, the funding process particularly if they're going with a bank um, a, you know a, a high street or clearing bank um, the process can take anywhere up to between three months three months is uh, is ambitious uh, but deliverable in certain circumstances if you're uh, their favourite developer. Uh, six months is definitely not uncommon, and I've even heard of instances where, you know, someone like RBS can take a year to advance money to a developer. Um, and is that where you're finding that you guys are able to sort of step in and act in a more agile way? Yeah, uh, we are. We are. That's that's definitely true. So you know, we've we're able to help. We're able to help a, a developer acquire a site within four working days and we've done that well, we've done that before. slightly different to nine months to yeah. a year isn't it <laughs> you know you, you know you ultimately are you know you, the, the process of the process of putting a development facility in place is um, can be quite cumbersome but we know we know we know in ourselves that it generally takes a developer from the moment they purchase a site to getting on site and actually starting it takes them about three months to really get get started because They've got to appoint their. They've got to appoint the professional team. They've got to put their building contract in place if they're yeah, yeah. using external contractor. They need to put their employment employers requirements together. All things that we need them to do anyway, for that to correspond with our, um, for that to correspond with our, with our facility with them. So the most important thing that we see is that the, that the developer can get the site acquired, because obviously if they can't acquire the site then. Then they lose the opportunity. So there's there's 
there's speeding up that opportunity of acquisition. You know, that three, the three month, so the way we structure our facilities, we say we structure our facility in, it's structured in three ways. The third way is effectively rolling up interest and fees, which doesn't really make that much difference. But there's a facility A, which is to buy the land, and there's a facility B to build it out. And we don't, we have conditions for drawing facility A, which are just really, which is a certain set of conditions, which can be satisfied quite quickly. And then there's a second set of conditions, which is is ultimately, you know, putting, you know, getting the, the contracts and warranties in place with the professional team um, and having the specification ready for the development, which is something the developer will be doing themselves anyway. And so the moment they're ready to go on site and put the spade in the ground, we are ready to effectively fund that that work. And so that uh, that two stage facility, the two stage facility, does give the developer can can speed the developer up quite quite substantially, so that you know they're not waiting six months to get the site acquired, and they're not waiting uh, and they're not waiting six because that's not just six months to get the site acquired, it's to get all all of the professional stuff in place. But even if you even if you're working with RBS and you you know you get to that six month point and then you finally draw down, they're still not going to be they're still going to be six to eight weeks of delay on top of that for the site team to get mobilised for pe- for anyone to actually get on site and start you know putting bricks on bricks. Yeah, I mean it's I mean I can hear what you're saying that there are always going to be reasons for for, for a lack of speed for for want of a better word, um, but. But I, I can't help but feel and look at the promising side that where where companies like yours, where you're coming into the market, is is what you're offering is, I'm going to go on a tangent here, but something I, and I might have said it before on this pod, but what um, Roger Wade, who's the founder of Box Park, the sort of the shipping containers, pop-up retail uh, system, and he said that um, Box Park can react to the market in real time. And by that, it wasn't this idea of, you know, oh, let's build a shopping center, let's get brands in on 25-year leases. 15 years down the line, all of a sudden, something's become uncool. Technology has rapidly changed. And this has happened mostly throughout a lot of the American uh, suburban shopping malls. It's happened here in the UK. And those shopping malls have had to split in their offering, whether they're premium, whether they're convenience. But in the same way that someone, you know, you said before that people don't always want things built around them. It's as much people always don't want something unnecessary built around them. And if if there is this lag in development, if there is this lag in funding, and that schemes are perhaps delivered at one economic point that are no longer viable or useful or actually relative to that area, you're looking at redundancy. And there's something interesting about where, you know, when you said about four days and where you could change that. And I know that's a great example. I'm sure things take a longer and, and, and they and they often can take a little bit longer. Yeah, yeah, no, of course, of course that, that that that's a given. But you are enabling people to be more agile and responsive yeah. to the market in delivering, you know, a market fit product. And I think that's the that's the exciting point. And I think, you know, um, I'm as much stating my own point rather than ask, yeah, uh, uh, asking a question because I think these are you know th- these are the questions we need to ask in how how do we deliver the right types of buildings to the right types of people? I mean, I, I'd give you an example. I'd give you another example where someone who might have been buying and someone might have bought an office in office building in uh, north of Oxford Street, for example, um, late in late 2014, 2015. 
when the resi market was going bananas and they thought they were going to sell, you know, seven penthouse flats of five million quid each um, at two and a half thousand pounds a square foot. You know, if if their funding agreement was, you know, if they if they if they spent forever trying to put that funding agreement in place, and then they finally put the funding agreement in place by the site, but then but then their funding agreement only permits them to deliver out resi mm-hmm. schemes for which there's no demand for, whereas what they should have been doing was actually looking at a resurgent office market yeah. and be able to react to that, and so yeah, I, I think your your funder has to be sufficiently agile and. Um, flexible to to look at those circumstances and say okay maybe that is a better option and you I, I think in a lot of cases funders won't have that but not not all funders are going to be able to, to give you that but, but on that so if someone can't deliver uh, flats for sale because of a market change or something we're seeing now uh, as you just mentioned in London uh, you know the capital required up front um, is a stretch to a lot of uh, people in London themselves, but also international investors are looking back, going, "Hang on, that's a lot of money. Will mm. I get a resale value out of that? You know, our wages equivalent." But something coming up is the the private rental sector market or the sort of build to rent. Mm. Um, I don't know if this is a chalk and cheese, but it does does this fit in with what you're looking at alternative funding and financing? Will that really ever? Support the long-term return through um, through through rents. You you mean as in if a, if it would a if a developer had to change their scheme from a from a private sale model to to build to rent? Can yeah. that can that be economically viable? And what economically viable for you? And we're seeing murmurs of it in the massive schemes that are going on in Battersea along the river and in London. Um, and I, mostly because I, I think that's I think that there is. Um, you know, there's generally a, you know, there is a generally a, a differential, isn't there, in the in the capital value per square foot of a, um, or not in capital value per square foot, but the value on a private sale. If you had the same unit on a private sale basis on a, and on a on a let basis, um, the VP value is always going to be higher. Um, that being said, if the if the demand is not there, then if the demand is not there for private sale. And you know you, you you can create a rental investment, then um, then that, that that creates a degree of viability. Then I, I don't see any reason why why that's not why that's not a problem. The the challenge you've got, Josh, is that it a lot of it boils down to um, what it is and where it is. You know, if you if you're if the differential between the the let value and the VP value. Is too stark, then that starts to eat in that. That then starts to put pressure, particularly on a lender, and the lender might say, and in terms of their LTV ratio, and the lender might start to feel a little bit uncomfortable if, you know, if the LTV ratios are, are starting to get in danger of being breached, um, at least materially. Um, you know, somewhere like Battersea, for example, where you've got. You know the rental values. You know, you know if you applied a traditional rental yield against the rental values in that kind of location, um, you probably you know you probably find as a as the de- as the, the development finance provider that that kind of exit is not that appealing. Um, 
you know, it, it's it, it is ultimately, you know, it, it's ultimately you've got to look at it on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think high end stuff is a bit more challenging to to look at to look at those kind of things um, where you've got more you know more more natural family housing or or you know more standard market housing where people like you and me or or maybe people more like you for example you're a bit younger than me um, you know you're looking to to buy your first flat or something like that um, you know and and someone you know the average person with a mortgage can can afford to buy to can afford to buy a unit in that scheme. Um, because the di- the differential between the let value and the the let value and the the VP value is not uh, VP for those who don't know is vacant possession is event- effectively empty property for sale. Because that differential isn't going to be that different, a lender's going to look at it and think, well, it's not it's no big deal, it's fine, and that that's I don't I'm you're not going to have as many concerns where when you've got you know a bright shiny brand new flat that's marketed for sale at £1,500 a square foot. As soon as the tenant goes in it, they're there for a year, it's no longer brand new, and then you're basically the same as a second-hand Battersea apartment at £900 to £1,000 a square foot. So you've effectively just lost £500 a square foot of value in a year mm. to put a tenant in there. So that's pretty. that in itself is pretty value destructive. But then, of course, if you're capitalising the income from that tenancy at, at a cap rate, that doesn't that doesn't also meet the you know that's a very wide margin of the VP value. Um, that probably isn't going to work. Mm-hmm. I, but I can also understand why the developer of that kind of scheme would rent the units out because the Battersea and Nine Elms as a location at the moment is kind of has that slightly. It's a bit like Canary Wharf as a res, was as a residential location. 15 years ago let's say and it's yet to you know it, it, it still needs to establish and my personal view is it's going to be especially when the Northern Line extension goes in it's going to be a really exceptional place to live I mean I think there's a long from a long term a medium to long term perspective it's it's going to make a lot of sense and you know, particularly when Apple move into their offices and all the developments are completed all the public realm is done the infrastructure works that are going in transport it's, it's going to be a very exciting location and if if you are if you are if you as a developer or an investor holding owning one of these units have the ability to hold the unit and rent it out then that's then that's all well and good but if you're if you're the development lender and you're three quarters of the way through development and that's your only and and the developer turns around to you and says actually I'd like to I think we're going to rent these out as a development lender you, you're going to say Okay, let's have a look at this. Does this really work? Is this gonna, you know, it does this does this create any problems for us? Um, because the development lender's exit in that situation is going to be a refinance through a commercial mortgage. Is the developer going to be able to raise enough money through the commercial mortgage to repay the development lender? And that's that's going to be the development lender's primary concern. And if the development lender can't be repaid, fully repaid, they're they're going to be create 
problems for the developer, or they're going to be difficult with the developer. Sounds uh, sounds pretty complicated at that side <laughs> of things, is you know, yeah, your your great stories will always go through. Um, so I've got one last question. I guess it's really broad, really open. Doesn't have to be about what you do, but in the built environment industry, from construction to planning to to uh, the office market to uh, surveying, all all these sorts of sectors. Where is your, you know, is there one thing you'd love to see that you think would make such a difference? Um, if I think about, if if I think about what my, um, what, what what is our biggest risk as a business? It's it's that it, it's actually fraud. Interesting. So and particularly seller fraud. So the seller of a property selling a property that they own that that they. That they don't own to to one of our customers, and we've got insurance for all of that, and that's fine. And you know, you, you can't you can't allow or account for every situation. But uh, there was a in the press earlier in the year, a company called FinCorp lent money to a, a young lady and her mum, who claimed to be the owner of an unencumbered flat in or house in Fulham, lent them a million quid. The actual owner was some lady who was 86 and lived in Leicestershire. Um, the the fraudsters changed their names, changed the got passports, ID. They were the tenants that they had. They were actually the tenants of the property, so they had the they had the you know proof of address, all that kind of stuff. You know all the kind of standard checks that most lenders perform. They they um, they don't you know they. You know, they they would you know most standard lenders and and actually it's really rocked our industry, the bridge lending industry, because the FinCorp is a is a bridge lender, but it's really rocked our industry because um, a very experienced guy who's a former head of um, head of a, um, a a large bank that specialised in uh, bridge lending. You know, he said to, he said to me, you know, he said, I, you know, and given that he didn't actually incur the loss, he said like, this this thing keeps me up this situation this story keeps me up at night because I think to myself what would I have done differently and um, and it's an in, and it's an interesting one and you know you can fiddle you know and, and, and you can fiddle at the margins and find ways of, of, of enhancing the process but you can't really eliminate the risk I think that so to answer the question I really like to see um, land registry details on blockchain and I thought that's where you were going. <laughs> uh, so land registry moving to blockchain. I think Panama. I think it's Panama or one of the Central American countries doesn't have a land registry at the moment. Is actually they are effectively setting up their own land registry on blockchain, and that's really interesting. But I think that moving property ownership details onto onto a blockchain based system that's kind of uncorruptible, the ownership uh, and and with a kind of secondary challenge, so whether that's some sort of retinal scan that confirms the ownership, um, or, or or some other mechanism where you know you 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 can provide a, so you, where you can carry out a greater degree of verification of the registered owner of a property's title, um, that that will that will then that will that will create a very great starting point because if you can register and you, if you can bear with me for a couple of minutes but if you can register the property details on blockchain then just think about all the other information that you can register on blockchain 
associated with that that title entry local searches the bane of my life in many ways (laughs) there is absolutely no excuse why a local search where you have to go and pay 300 quid to local authority for them for some person to go and scrabble around and perform a local search and put all this information because really local search information there's no reason why that can't be uploaded to the property titles information in real time in the same way and that would also include um, planning applications planning refusals you you should have a situation where every information every bit of information up to a point every information up to a point a bit of information you can relating to a property can should be should be registrable on blockchain and that can also and that can also include valuations as well if you can provide if you can put all that information on a property into blockchain then the conveyancing process becomes you, instead of the conveyancing process taking three months the conveyancing process can take a day or two or three days if it's done by a human and then obviously there's that that process in itself can be uh, is going to be, uh, I think, very much under pressure of automation. If you can, if 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 you can have a solicitor turn around a report and title in a matter of hours, then ultimately, and you've and you've ultimately got a, and you've got valuations that can be updated in real time because ultimately, particularly on the residential side, on the commercial side, it's a different story. You could theoretically see uh, mortgage applications um, being processed in 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 just a few days. As opposed to the weeks that it that they currently take, um, so that for me would be the one innovation or development in the technology space that I'd really like to see advanced. Love it, love it, Michael. Thank you very much for your time thank this you, morning. Josh. So a huge thank you to Michael for lending his time to us, going deep into where the problems are lying and the realities, and how we can find ways to have greater control over the development of our cities. If you have any questions to ask Michael in response to anything he shared, then you can contact him via his website, which is avamorecapital.com. And I'm sure you can find him on Twitter with his at sign of at property underscore funder. You'll see his name will come up as Property Miguel. Well, that's because Mike has the unfortunate circumstance of sharing his name with a football referee called Mike Dean, and no one really likes him. So thank you again for listening to the podcast. We're on iTunes, so if you haven't found us there, please do leave us a review and give us hopefully a positive one. And if you want any questions to be sent to us, then please do, then send them to podcast at thecentriclab.com. And if you want to follow us more on Twitter, it's at The Centric Lab. Bye.